Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm right We're, we're, we're going to get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Koontz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on The Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration, craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. Sometimes we play clips of local writers reading their work at our reading series. Other times we invite those writers, as well as other members of the community, to join our discussion. On today's show, we want to talk about the interplay of form and content in poetry. Now, I know I have already included <laughs> some poets out there by even attempting to make a distinction between the content of a poem and its form, as some might argue that a poem gets its meaning from the form. And what am I even talking about when I try to talk to about a poem's meaning without its form? Well, if it's so wow. damn controversial, then it must be worth talking about. Courtney, what's your take? Uh, that was a philosophical circle that you just put in there. <laughs> um, and also... I always do this to Courtney. I'm like, go! And she's like, uh, what am I supposed to do to that? <laughs> also, I find it very interesting that you, as the self-proclaimed unpoet, uh, are tapping this topic. So... That's right. Um, here we go. Luckily, um, I have you by my side to help me. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. I think uh, poet. the I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, the reinforcements we'll call in later will be helpful for this. But <laughs> I will offer. Um, oh, man, I think that I think there can be um, there are different categories of poetry, right? Just as there are any other genre and some you have the very structured form that is fully dictating or more dictating what the content is going to be whereas others you use the content to dictate the form or to say like this is the thing I want to talk about and so I'm going to structure it in this way um so I don't think that they're you know those things are mutually exclusive either um but I think as as readers, there's a perception of something like a pantoum or a sestina or a sonnet as being very formal. Um, whereas if you see a you know visually oriented poem on the page, that feels very avant garde. Um, and I don't think either of those things are true. <laughs> but Sava, <laughs> here we are, and I have a. <laughs> I have a purple rhinoceros that my dog just gave me, so <laughs> that's here too. What is your take, Rachel? Well, I can only speak from a nonfictioner's perspective, although my nonfiction is fairly lyrical. But 
there are times, there have been times, I should say, where I had dedicated myself to a certain form and then I'm going along with that form. And then I realize the form is no longer serving me, that mm-hmm. it's actually preventing me from getting across what I'm hoping to get across. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in that sort of dichotomy. Like, how do you know when to like push on and force yourself to really, um, you know, get really get the content to fit into the form and how do you know when to break all the rules and just say, well, fuck it either, you know, I'm going to spin off of this form and make it something new, or I'm going to like abandon this whole project and Mm -hmm. find a new way of expressing the thing that I'm trying to express. I find that sometimes in first drafts, uh, even shitty first drafts, if you will, um, I, <laughs> I, um, I find a, a, a structure, which is different from form, but I find a structure really helpful um, mm-hmm. because given constraints, I can kind of tease out what the actual idea is or the theme mm-hmm. is or what is mm-hmm. that like crucial thing I'm trying to say. What is the heart of the poem itself or the piece mm-hmm. itself? You can extend it beyond the poem. Um and we've talked about that before, just jumping in, like yeah. one of your favorite exercises is, you know, writing something, maybe 500 words and then mm-hmm. cutting it down to 300 words and then cutting it down to 200 words and then 100 words. Um, and that's, you know, one of your favorite exercises, which we have both done before. And that can be useful for the exact same th- thing yeah. that you're talking about, where you have to say, well, what is absolutely essential here? And forcing yourself to cut it out makes you have to figure that out mm-hmm. the other that that's definitely like one side of it and then the other side is it makes it almost like a puzzle right so if you're needing inspiration if you're mm-hmm. like oh my creative juices are flowing but they're not like really going the way I want them to um I find that having some kind of other sort of play or thing at play there is really helpful to get me excited about a subject again if I feel like I've been mired in it and you know struggling Mm. with it in my head so it's like that mad libs kind of thing and you can you can kind of find the fun in poetry again and the reader too yeah absolutely Absolutely. So uh, what are your favorite, do you have any poems that you love that play with form or do you have favorite forms? Oh, my yeah. secret poet, my darling secret, secret poet. poet. I actually, um, I actually really enjoy pantoums. Um, Me too. I, I mean, really I've been you recently been getting into a pantoum, but I was, did <laughs> It offers you enough opportunity to, to shift you know, to be, to go off the rails, but with still like that nice bow at the end. Right. Um, so I like those a lot. Um, but I also love people who really successfully achieve, um, you know, that visual element in a poem, which Mm. I think it takes a lot. It's so hard. It's so hard, um, to match the rhythm to the vision. And it also then necessitates that, the person experiencing it be actually reading it right so it's there it's not necessarily for a, a, a spoken poem to have that part of it as part of the experience which is fine but it's they're just different experiences that way um 
who do I love? Uh, Marilyn Chin plays with this in this way a little bit. Um, she's one of one of my kind of favorite classic poets, um, and she doesn't she doesn't get too wild with form, but there's definitely um, ways that she plays on the page. Um, yeah. Well, if you love people who play on the page, then you are going to love our next guest. That's right. <laughs> and familiar. We are going to get more on this topic from an actual poet. Um, coming up, we'll speak to Danielle Badra, this month's Author's Corner Spotlight. Let's gather. <laughs> gather. Gather, please. Gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're gonna get started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing form and content in poetry, and now we'd like to welcome Danielle Badra to give us her take. Danielle is the author of Like We Still Speak from the University of Arkansas Press, and she is the Interloop's author corner June Spotlight. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> In the editor's preface of this collection, it says, quote, the more Badra toils with form compositionally, structurally, linguistically, the more the metaphysical emanates from the page. And for the first time ever, I really regret that our listeners cannot see us so I could show them the beautiful and fascinating ways uh, your poems are organized on the page. Can you talk a little bit about how you worked with form in this collection and how it helped you to convey the inexpressible aspects of grief? Yeah. Um, so I want you to imagine a conversation between two people. There's a back and a forth, right? There's a call and a response. Um, and that's exactly what's happening on the page for a lot of the poems in the book. Uh, it's a form called the contrapuntal form. Um, however, when I started writing these, it was, I didn't know that term. Um, and I didn't write them to be contrapuntal poems. Um, <laughs> I started, I called them dialogue poems um, because I was responding to the loss of my sister who died very suddenly. I was 25, she was 28. Um, and I found a bunch of poems that she'd written after she died. Um, she wrote them before she died. I found them after she died. And I I missed her and I needed to talk to her. And so I started to write alongside her poems and created these dialogues between us. Um, and it just turned into a collection, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I really love how the the title of the collection, like we still speak, sort of gains meaning, like the more poems you read. Did that come, that sort of like unifying concept come before or after many of the poems were written? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the way that I've been writing poetry since my sister died for the past 10 years now um, has really been conversational. Mm -hmm. um, but 
once I entered grad school is really when I started to expand the conversation to be beyond just me and my sister and include other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's when it really solidified for me that this collection would be um, about how we speak uh, to everyone, right? Not just um, to one person, but like I've got family, friends, my, my wife is in there. I've got poets who I admire. Um, Mm -hmm. So just kind of looking at the idea of conversation. It also started after the um, 2016 election (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, where there was a lot of fracturing in this country and a lot of conversations not being had. Um, And so I thought it was important to kind of focus on trying to write more conversational poems. I love um, how you capitalize on this because, you know, something, I think a trick that we do as writers a lot or that, you know, we're told to do to process things is write a letter, right? Like, you know, write a letter to the person you want to talk to, but they can't write back in the way that your poems allow that exact conversation to happen. I love, for example, the, um, the poem that is featured on your postcards, um, the one that you and your wife wrote together, because the first time I read it, I was reading it, I think, vertically, and then I read it horizontally, and it had just, like, so many different meanings, depending on how I looked at it, and I loved that. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, poems, just because, well, it's, it's, well, so I put it at the end of the poem, at the end of the book, I'll just say, because I I start the book with a poem between me and my sister that's kind of like a love poem Mm -hmm. between us as sisters and then ending on the love poem with my wife. It just feels like a, even though the poem has a lot of grief in it and it can be heavy, um, I think it's a nice way to kind of wrap it all up to have love kind of on both ends of the collection. Yeah, it's funny, Courtney, and I had another poem, uh, the one called Inheritance, that was similar, where I read it down, and then I read it down, and then across, and it was, the meaning was constantly sort of shifting, and I thought it was just a really um, interesting way of conveying grief, which is so difficult to articulate. It's, I find that it's, like, impossible to articulate in some ways, and sort of creating these surreal experiences within the poem, I felt sort of mimicked that surreal experience of grief. Um, yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Super, super interesting. Yeah. Um, so speaking of these interesting forms that you're using on the page, um, like where the poem is sort of three different poems at the same time. And um, you also use the visual poem a lot. Um, Courtney and I were discussing earlier in the A block, but also on previous podcasts, we talk about always how form is sort of like a means of constraint, um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you have to force whatever meditations you're having into certain syllables, rhymes, um, whatever the form is. Mm -hmm. And we find like, it's a useful way to sort of, sort of hem in the chaos. Um, but in this collection, I really feel like that's not how form is working for you. I mean, maybe your experience of it was different, but as a reader, it feels like it's much more liberating. Form is like almost liberating in this sense and is giving more room to for expression. So um, I wonder how you decided to to use certain forms or or you know, what drove the experimentation with the forms? Uh, well, that's a great question. I like to use form 
um, mostly as a way to determine how a reader will navigate a poem. Um, so I'll start if I'm using found text, like a poem from my sister or a, a Facebook post from my mom or whatever. Um, I will start with their words on a page. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I'll start trying to just write alongside them. And if it makes sense for it to become a contrapuntal poem, then that's the form that it'll take. Or if it makes sense for it to be more like a golden shovel, um, poem where you've got, Mm -hmm. you know, a word that will like hang on and, and, uh, over onto like the next line from the end of one line to the beginning of another. Um, I hope I'm describing that correctly. Um, yes, totally. <laughs> you, you know, wh- whatever form it seems best to have that conversation in, mm. um, I, I kind of just figure that out as I'm writing the poem. Um, and then once I create the poem in that form, because I do follow a form very strictly when I first write a poem, but then I give myself space from a poem, I come yeah. back to it. And I say, okay, how is this form now hindering the piece? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I allow myself to break it if I need to. I try not to. Rule <laughs> <laughs> we'll follower. Yeah. But, but if I need to, like the very first poem in the book, Sister, Sister, I was trying to write a syllabic replica of the poem my sister wrote uh-huh. to me for my 23rd birthday. And it is almost exactly you know syllable for syllable um mirroring her poem um but there were some places especially during the editing process of the book where my editors were just like break it danny (laughs) (laughs) break it danny i love it so so, you know it had to be broken Wow, Danny, you and I are cut from the same ilk. I'm very similar. I'm like, but no, it has yeah. to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Sometimes I think, oh, it's so genius if I keep it this way. But, but you know, sometimes the genius is in letting the content be the thing that carries the poem rather than the form. Yeah. Um, yeah, and isn't that so interesting? That speaks to what I was going to ask you as well is is when do you know when to break the rules basically, when to break the form? Yeah. Um because you know, it can be useful in the beginning, but like you said, soon sooner or later the content's going to be like stop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and and for me, it's just a matter of when I come back to the poem, is it saying what I want it to say? You know, am I getting the meaning from Mm. it that I really want it to convey? Um, And if not, something probably needs to change. I'm probably doing doing too much to try to hold on Mm -hmm. to the form. With my sister's poems, especially, um, and this was something that I had to learn along the way, I, I was trying initially to preserve her poems so that I could publish her poems exactly as she wrote them. Mm-hmm. So I could preserve her voice exactly as she intended. Um, and, you know, I mean, her poems were not on their own publishable. Um, and so, of course, as I went along, I had to figure out that I had to also break her poems. Mm-hmm. And that was probably that was a lot harder, harder uh, for yeah. me because I felt like I was changing her words or something, but I did not at any point, <laughs> I will be clear. I did not at any point replace her words 
or change mm-hmm. the ordering, I would just mm-hmm. remove words mm-hmm. um, or change punctuation. And those were rules that I didn't want to break because I didn't want to put my words into hers, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we hear a few poems, even though we can't see them? I'm sure that they'll still translate. Sure. Um, well, okay. I feel like I talked about sister, sister a lot. So yeah. it's, it's long, okay, yeah. but yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just to reiterate, <laughs> um, this poem has two sides to it, but it's not really a formal contrapuntal, um, in that, uh, they're not lined up. The two sides aren't lined up. So you can't really read them across. It's, you just kind of read it left to right and then right to left. And, you know, wh- whatever you want to do is fine. But <laughs> my, okay. So the right hand side of the page though, is a poem that my sister wrote for me for my 23rd birthday. And at the time I thought it was a crappy gift because she didn't spend any money on me. And I just thought, all right, <laughs> all right, Rachel, I see you. Um, but, uh, she, it was the best gift ever. I, I ended up finding out. And, uh, so the right side is her and the left side is me and it's supposed to be a syllabic mirror, but it's not perfect. So, you know, all right. So this is sister, sister sitting on Sandy beach, toes dipped over fresh waters, cold edge, sandal lines seen on her. So tan feet, sunning herself asleep. She carries her poems like figs, shaken from the tree of knowledge or heartbreak, or picked from a window in Lebanon. Calling them figs does not describe her harvest, or her for that matter. It does not tell you how important she is to me, or everything I haven't said. She is still on the beach. She is always up shore from me, almost close enough to witness her barefoot markings falter mid-sand. I will follow her faded trail. She is still astray from safety and from land. Into water, it starts waist deep and drops off quick. She holds her breath. I am worried for us. The hourglass is stagnant, is sideways. I can't recall our childhood all on my own. I can't remember when we became sisters, embracing in mom's blue robe, or when she first held up my head. Sometimes I worry that the next time we meet, we will no longer know each other. She will dream in idioms that I don't understand, or she will not understand why my fire has never burned as fiercely as hers. There is always the hope that we can hold out our harvest to each other. We will see and savor everything we need to, though this would mean that I would have to pluck more than one fig a year. Photographs are not sufficient to tell her story. I know she loved me eventually, but love was after worry that I'd be better loved than her. Snapshot of two kids piled up on a paisley couch with mom euphoric. There are parts of her that I will never know, or if I did know, they would not mean what they should. She has outlived what I wish I could take away from her. What hurts most was left unresolved. There will always be this fig sitting in my stomach, rot, undissolving. She is not to blame. I am not to blame, too. If she can read this, she is haunting my hands, 
trying to talk or type in times to what she was. I am sorry if I'm wrong. It's been so long since we last laughed together. Was it February when we FaceTimed four years ago? It was her smile that made me cry. I would if that wouldn't take away her fire, which is something I could never do. I only hope that her harvest will not become like dead birds swollen with guilt and decomposition. I hope that it will remain like figs to her, nourishing if small and beautiful despite the heat of the sun. I hope that she will grow like the fig trees that live in her, through cracks in the earth's rind. I sobbed over the color green this morning, olive bikini at the bottom of her plastic tub of summer clothes that looked better on her than me. She always knew how to dress me, how to braid my hair like I braid her words like we still speak. Um. Should I read one more? Or <laughs> I was just letting it sink in. I know. Um, I I really love that line about how she loved me eventually, but love was after worry that I'd be better left than her. I just feel like it's such a perfect little snapshot of siblinghood. Yeah. Yes, it certainly is. <laughs> Both, you know, sides the dirty side too. Yep. Um, and for our listeners out there, um, Danny posted some beautiful photographs yes. on our Instagram page that really contextualized this poem as well. And those are really from my life. I didn't yeah. find those online. <laughs> well, I also love in there, Danny, like the little things, uh, the little tangible things that create and grow into the bigger things like the, you know, going to, I, I am right there with you going through a Tupperware container of clothes, you know, like those kind of moments. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. 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 And I think we have time for one more. Yeah. Maybe a little bit shorter one. Okay. Well, thankfully all the rest of them are shorter. So <laughs> that one didn't feel long or anything. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, uh what about a candle from rome italy sure sounds great oh. it's summertime yeah yeah <laughs> um okay so this is a candle from rome italy the reason why i never lit the wick before now pollinated pistol of a tiger lily thick with wax petals of bright orange and burnt yellow and almost alive 11 years ago on the way to the Pantheon, I purchased a candle at an artisan stand in an ancient square called Campo de Fiori, where Giordano Bruno burned at the stake for watching the stars and acting out the art of memory. My father stared there at the bronze statue and wept without words. My sister and I watched my father weep at the feet of an old martyr. My father would not weep like that again until he held my sister's hands while she was seizing. I watched him weeping while my sister was seizing. We held hands. Mm. Yeah, so you can hear the form in that one a little more. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful yeah. imagery, like uh, juxtaposed to such brutality. Yeah. <laughs> Danny's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah. this has been such a great discussion. Thank you so much, Danny, for chatting with us about uh, your collection. Uh, you can find out more about Danny, read more interviews and articles, and buy her book, Like We Still Speak, via our website, theinnerlooplet.org slash authors corner. Uh, Danny, I hope that you will stick around for a little bit of trivia. I will, though I can't <laughs> guarantee I'll be very good at it. So. <laughs> Amazing. Well, up next, apparently we're going to be playing Can You Name That Poetry Form? I know that I probably can't, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to a little trivia game that I invented. Can you name that poetry form? How are you guys feeling? Uh, They're not feeling good, folks. <laughs> no, not, not terribly good. No. This is going to be like the recesses of my mind, like, you know, oh, going back a few posh. years. Fish posh. I'll start, start with an easy one. Okay. Right, name okay. that form. There once was an old man from Nantucket who kept all his cash in a bucket. His daughter called Nan ran away with a man. And as far as the bucket, Nantucket. (laughs) Oh, Nantucket. I get it. Uh, That's a limerick. Yeah, that's a limerick. Yeah, Yeah, that's a limerick. Yeah. Yeah. Boost your confidence. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, as far as the bucket, fuck it. like okay that works too funny funny side note about limericks um when i was a dog walker in dc i used to write limericks for the dogs for christmas for all of my clients or for the holidays yeah i would have given you five stars five stars stars. okay um all right here's another one Sir, I admit your general rule that every poet is a fool, but you yourself may serve to show it that every fool is not a poet. Mm. That there poems by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I mean, I feel like it's a syllogism, right? But like, is that the form? I don't know what the form is. 
Yeah, I didn't know that this would be um, like poems read to us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a mix. There's a mishmash. I can give you. I can give you the the. uh, Well, the um, characteristics are that it's often satirical, two to four lines in length. Oh, yes. Either a couplet or a quatrain. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's sounding like a form that has a name. A <laughs> uh, joke? Yeah, that's really good. It's a joke. No, it's an epigram. Oh, uh, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> Oh, okay. See, um, if I had, like, if it were, like, matching, I could do it. Like, if I had, like, the list of forms, then it would be, Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. almost did multiple choice, but this seemed more fun. Yeah, just okay. Random more fun idea. for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's uh, just, a, like, a question. What is a nine-line poem wherein the first line is nine syllables, and then each line thereafter drops a syllable until it goes down to one syllable? I have no idea, but I love the idea. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that does sound great. I wish I had known about this poem, and now I do, so I can write one. It's called a nonet. 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 Nine eight seven six five four three four. Oh wow! Real cute. Yeah, huh. Danny, for your next book. Okay. <laughs> yeah, nonet. Nonet. I like nonet. it. <laughs> and this one, it was a similar one that I was like. Uh, I need to be obsessed with this. It's a poem that's all about the power of three. Each line contains three syllables. Each stanza contains three lines, and each poem has three stanzas. I've actually seen that before, but I don't remember. What Wait, it's each line has three syllables. Yes, mm-hmm. that's it. That's yep. it. Huh? <laughs> You're like, well, how could you write a poem out of that? <laughs> I feel like I actually knew this one at some point in my life. Uh... I'm going to be of no help, I feel like, for this whole quiz. So, <laughs> this is a trip, 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 I don't know. <laughs> Almost. I mean, yeah, if you know Latin, I feel like you could throw a good guess at it. I don't. All these names are yeah. Latin. Um, I don't even know that I can pronounce this. Tricubis? Tricubis? Okay. Sure. sure. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I really like the number three, so I feel like we should all write one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? All right. How about last one? Um, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. Shall I read it to you just to give you a sense? I think it's a sonnet, right? No, ma'am. Okay, I'm gonna just. I'll be over here in my corner. (laughs) Yes, please read it. Okay, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. 
grave men near death who see with blinding okay, sight. Okay, so this is our pantoum. Yeah, it's yeah. a pantoum. Yeah, <laughs> it's not I, a pantoum. It's not. <laughs> okay, what? fine. There is a lot of repetition. Line one repeats in line six. 12 and 18 and line three repeats in lines 9 15 and 19 and it's an aba rhyme yeah, scheme. yeah 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 but, but what? It's, a, it's a villanelle oh villanelle yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah that okay. makes sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you guys did better than i did because no, i would have just not. been like no <laughs> No, that's not a thing. We, no. we you at least pretended to know by being like, oh, <laughs> now I yeah. got that. <laughs> um, why didn't you give us like a cross stick or something that we actually could have gotten? I give you two that you knew. You knew Limerick. You Where knew... was the haiku? Oh, maybe you only knew Limerick. Yeah. Limerick, haiku yeah. Is, Limerick is the only one we got. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Way too easy. Okay. Um, Anywho, thank you so much, Danny, for playing our little game and being our show. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> we are our pleasure. And that's our show. We'll be back next month. And did you know that the Inner Loop has lots of programming for writers in the DC area? So much. We do readings, retreats, workshops, a summer residency, and more. To read all about it, visit us at theinnerlooplit.org, where you can also, hey, donate to support us and local literature. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop Lit. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical advisor is James Skinner. Thanks again to Danielle Badra for joining us on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, write us a haiku. Or better yet, leave us a review. Such as, (laughs) there once was a show from DC. It was offered to writers for free. The content was fine, the form benign, but the two gals on air host beautifully. Oh, wow. That was, wow. That uh, took way longer than you think. I bet it did. I bet it did. So you should subscribe for more content like this. Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on.